worried about the potential disappearance of calendar days and the meaningful effect it may have on you, both physically and spiritually? Do you find yourself worrying that one day the powers that be, specifically that rascally Pope, may decide that the Gregorian calendar, which has been our constant measurement of the days for over 250 years, no longer fits our temporal needs? Well, friends, worry no more. Introducing Dr. Bray's 11-Day Stay-Away Spray, guaranteed to repel any temporal adjustments up to 11 days duration. If that pesky Pope plies his pugnacious practice of date disorientation, our aerosolized antidote will keep you safe from time-shifting events. Keep out of the reach of children and the elderly. Side effects include nausea, disorientation, lightheadedness, unwilling entrance into vortices, depositing you in places outside of time and space, vomiting, and castoranthropy. Dr. Bray's 11-day stay-away spray. Don't let the Pope tell you what day it is. Thank you for joining us in Mapping the Zone, a podcast dedicated to informal discussion of the works in context of Thomas Pynchon. My name is not Cody, but it is Kate. Cody, unfortunately, was not able to be here with us tonight, but I am one of the co-hosts here. Hi, I'm Will. Hey, I'm Luke. And we are following the reading schedule from the Pynchon subreddit. Today we're going to be discussing chapters 61 through 65 of Mason and Dixon. Do you have a summary for us, Will? That I do. So, picking up the next day, Captain Shelby escorts the leaders of our party to a nearby snake hill. They arrive and are surprised to find that the mound is actually just conical in shape. They peer into a tunnel dug into it, revealing that the constituents are actual shells, ashes and other such evidence of human life compiled in layers. Reminding Dixon again of the batteries shown to them by Franklin, they bicker over what forms of power may be magnified by such base materials. On the way back, Shelby announces suspicions of the Welsh tribes which, now mistaken for Aboriginal, may make up the very Tuscarora that Mason advised. The professor back at the camp is inspired by this talk of layering to consider the aim of the line, which is itself a horizontal stacking of air mile markers and human activity. Zhang, delighted by something he can get behind for once, Hops on this train of thought. Dixon, the mania spreading, postulates the hollowness of the earth implies a more general sort of power concentration, and Mason's challenge to the basic assumption there is beat back by Stig, suddenly speaking, talking of the rumors of such a portal to an inner world far north of his home. Completing this suite of pseudo-geology, Zhang shares the Jesuit theory that China is an alien planet, collided and fused with Earth long ago. Captain Shelby takes the time to alert Mason and Dixon of rumors of a third surveyor. They seem to be based on a mix of suspected sightings, on the basic human need for threes, and some general superstitions about the true pilot of the Visto. The popular conclusion appears to be that it's Old Scratch himself. After some startling over Mason's sleep-talking, which he assumes to be possession, as it is not in English, they begin to realize just how much they are not the main characters here. One such indication 
is the revelation that Stig, the silent Swede of long note, is revealed to be not Swedish, maybe not even human. He's from the far north, employed as a spy for the Swedish government, who claim true ownership of Pennsylvania as the preeminent colonists. His business, at the moment, is simply to ensure the line gets drawn, and to immerse himself in the mindset of the enemy. As they finish the west line on the Allegheny Divide, a strange pack of trappers appear to question their business here. They seem content with the matters of fact responses, drawing a line for some people. On the return voyage, they encounter a family stricken by the horrors of castoranthropy, werebeavers. It seems to be a progressive illness, causing paranoia and compulsive wall building, and, well, between Professor Bohm's theorizing and apparent boredom of the crowd, the giant beaver himself, Zepho Beck, wagers that he can best Stig at tree felling. Bets are made and they line up to start, and the two-hour trial begins. Stig is, of course, being cheered on by some nice girls in the camp, and distracted, he falls behind. Severely. Luckily, his shame is shortened by the arrival of an eclipse that the astronomers forgot to take note of. Oops. This tickles Zhang, as coming from a culture with a lot more stake placed in the movements of the sky, he has a relevant story to share. In the time before dates when tales are told, the two royal astronomers named Shi and Ho made a similar mistake. The eclipse being seen as a poor omen for the king, they are drunkenly wandering one afternoon and find themselves chated by the moon. They're too busy blaming to make amends, so they're sentenced to death. Oops. Again. They flee on a giant kite, which just barely keeps them gliding. One of them slips. Oops. Thankfully, he lands in a lake, and only fell about ten feet anyway. The lake is outside of the pursuer's jurisdiction, apparently, owned by a Lord Wong. Wong is happy to accept their job application sans reference, as they promise to predict future eclipses. Well, old dogs, new tricks, they miss another one. Wong has placed some wagers on the eclipses. And so, the story splits here, into either their banishment into the desert, or into an ending where the mob catches Lord Wong before he catches them. And Shi and Ho, having been fooling with his daughters, stand to inherit everything. In November, the east line is run from the initial point back to the Delaware shore. Zhang is fascinated by their sense of ownership, as such a segment is trivial after the work they've already done. He discloses his complex sense of guilt and lust surrounding Eliza to mirror their own dedication. Later, they reconvene at the Harlands, and in preparation for the Christmas season, the three astronomers and the reverend debate which star was that which brought the wise men to Christ's manger. Wick seems to regret his choice of conversation partners fairly soon. All right, thank you for that, Will. Um, so starting off just with chapter 61, and really this, I guess, whole set of chapters, does anyone have any particular thoughts? How did we feel about this particular section? Um, as I've talked about in past episodes, um, you know, I really love the stories within stories, the story in this, um, in this, in this book, uh, so I love the I'm going to I'm not even going to try to pronounce the names as well as Will did. But the uh, the Chinese astronomer story, which um, I think the Pynchon Wiki gets into how it's uh, based on a true story, more or less. Although I think the 
real life astronomers um, from pretty far back in time, uh, surprisingly far back in time, considering how they uh, had apparently, you know, they they were expected to predict the eclipse correctly. So that does imply a certain level of knowledge. Because uh, I, th- I want to say it's thousands of years before before Jesus was born, before in thousands of years, like 3000 BCE or something. Um, I could be wrong about that. But um, I, I so I did really like that that has a historical basis. I do think it could be interesting to kind of um, do a kind of scholarly deep dive on the interrelation between that story and then the Mason and Dixon story at large. Um, because there do seem to be some similarities there. Um, you know, the, the the story of the Chinese astronomers is definitely shorter, um, obviously, and a little bit more uh, maybe picaresque or a little bit more fanciful, um, less serious than, than the book at large. But it is a good story. Uh, we do get a lot of stig in these chapters, particularly, I think, 62 and 63. As I mentioned before, Stig is a character that kind of stuck out to me on my reads and rereads of this book. Um, the whole discussion of there being a north, you know, like some somewhere further north than than was previously suspected, and all the stuff about the Hollow Earth uh, is interesting. And um, as I've talked about before, that we get into that and and against the day a little bit more, which is it's always fun to kind of point out and explore the inter the relationship between this book and against the day. Um, I really enjoyed chapter 61 as I think I talked about in past episodes as well. You know, I, I have been somewhat fascinated by the idea of these mounds in America. Um, they do seem to have a relationship, at least a tertiary one with, uh, certain, uh, locations in England and other places in Europe uh, where similar structures were built at maybe around the same time. Um, we'll get into this, I'm sure, once we hit the the chapter-by-chapter chapter discussion. Um, I do want to kind of point out that I may have implied in past episodes that Native Americans couldn't have built these structures, uh, which is a common opinion, um, but I do think it is a somewhat uh, colonial-esque Calling like a you know it's a bit I I maybe even racist opinion to have I didn't necessarily think about it or mean to imply that in the past because um, it is certainly possible that it, that a Native American tribe the Native Americans built these built these mounds built these uh, built these uh, structures that are explored in chapter sixty one and the end of chapter sixty um, I do think that much not much is known about their construction or what their purpose was and a lot of that stuff even today. And it does seem to be a kind of historical mystery that may never be solved. Um, there's a lot to like about these chapters. You know, they're shorter. Um, they're easy to read. They kind of breeze by. Um, yeah, I mean, it, and it does seem to be like we're kind of, you know, like, like the like the train is kind of slowly stopping, like we're kind of easing into the station. Here at the end of this section, uh, we don't have that much more to go. Um, I'm always surprised whenever I flip open the book to um, to find how how deep into the book we already are. Um, but yeah, these sections are. This section is is it can like that the Chinese astronomer story is maybe my favorite uh, story within the story um, in any pension work. Um, 
I do. I mean, the Lambda and Worm is also up there. Uh, but you know, we get them both pretty like back to back, more or less. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, this is one of my favorite sections of the book. So, I definitely found this section to be multivaried and and incredibly interesting. And I think it actually, you know, not to get too ahead of ourselves with what we're talking about next week. I, I think that a lot of what's talked about in sixty one and then sixty four and sixty five in particular kind of creates a, a good transition point for, for the next set of chapters, which is one of my personal favorite sections uh, that I found a bunch of my notes from when I initially read the book. But yeah, I, I agree with you, Luke. I find the the whole concept of the native uh, mounds and how they were built and what they were for very fascinating. Um, and I'm excited to get some more of your perspective once we get into the to the chapter-by-chapter chapter discussion. Do you have any thoughts, Will, on the, the set of chapters as a whole? Yeah. Like, like I think both of you kind of implied, that it does, this is where things start to slow down. And it is, it is a nice thing, the way that it, the book starts to slow down here. Because Mason and Dixon is not, you know, gravity's rainbow. It's not anything, <laughs> uh, it's, it's not liquefying your brain and forcing it into a new mold. But it is tiresome at a certain point to be reading all of these uh, very archaic terms. And there's just so much going on at all times in this story. And these sections really do get to the heart of that with basically them realizing, hey, we are not the center of the story. All these people who are telling us this, they weren't lying. We <laughs> should look around and see the crazy stuff happening around us. We are the most boring part. Um, and I, I just think that that's a that's a really cool kind of way to I, I guess to start a denouement is to to have essentially the actual the actual story and not in an, not in any metafictional sense really, but just in general have the story start to collapse because you know the main characters realize hey this is not that important and that's that's just fun it's interesting how that has kind of worked out in the way that this book is written. And beyond that, it's these are just some really fun chapters. Whether it is the Chinese astronomers who are... I mean, it is, it is truly hilarious, every scene in that story, as short as it is. But to have it feel as funny as it is when it's come right after this incredible scene between a were-beaver... And someone who seems to be, maybe be an alien having a logging competition. And to have such a simple story of essentially two idiots being idiots be so funny immediately after such a comical and incredibly surreal section, it's very impressive. Yeah, I agree. I mean, not, not just the surreality of that, but also the the strange potential for a third surveyor this this other mysterious character who's sort of on the fringes watching them and occasionally appearing uh with no explanation as to why he's there or who he is like that's such a it's such a small inclusion in the chapter but it, it it's it really does invoke some existential dread in me because you know I don't know. It's it's one of the creepiest things to me when you just notice that someone's like looking at you in public 
or you know there's just some some somebody somewhere seems out of place for some reason uh in in a way that isn't natural is is always so frightening and for that to just be in here and then kind of moved on from um is is another really surreal aspect of these chapters yeah i'm i i'm not sure that as i've said before i've read this book multiple times i'm not sure mm-hmm. i caught this section in the past no and it is uh remarkable <laughs> I, I don't know what to make of it other than like as like i wrote in the summary i think the the first first degree inference is that it's you know satan or something mm-hmm. who's joining them especially with the talk of not wanting souls and how hell is full right but it is incredibly ambiguous. I mean, I, I think that especially the the specific choice of the term of where is it? The old gentleman makes me. It reminds me of the ghastly pop. Yeah, or supernumerary figure. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, absolutely. It's it's yeah, it's creepy, and and just the definition of that, like, you know. I looked it up. A, a supernumerary figure could be an extra member or temporary employee in addition to the permanent staff or permanent members of a society. So just an extra person for, you know, who who knows why. Very, very creepy and not something that I noticed either when I first read through these this book. So kind of moving forward into the chapter by chapter discussion, we have chapter 61, which obviously the, the biggest portion of it is certainly the the talk of the native mounds but also the the hollow earth thing i i find it's pretty funny that we even before we get into the chapter by chapter discussion that both myself and luke mentioned the fact that you know it nobody's quite sure how it was built there is the the problematic history of certain people claiming that the native americans did not build them but at any rate it, it's a very strange thing to exist in the first place and there's a great quote on page 598 that i just it strikes me as as being accurate even to our discussion here where uh it says they laugh but appear a solemn people worshiping laughter rather as a serious indeed holy force in nature never to be invoked idly this mound is something they understand perfectly that white people do not and show not no signs of ever doing so is a source of deep amusement for them Oh, this is something that 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 Pinchon has included in here and is somewhat undergirding our discussion of it in the first place. Um, so, kind of, I mean, Luke, you've you've shown the most fascination as far as vocally anyway, with these inclusions in the book. What do, what do you think about them? Yeah, I do think um, their inclusion at all is interesting. Um, you know, I I was a history minor in college. Um I didn't take any classes on on pre-Columbian America or anything. I don't think anyone at the college I went to had that expertise. Um, I guess what I'm getting at is, you know, I don't know how Pynchon even knew about these before the Internet. Uh, without the Internet, I highly doubt I would have any idea what these are. Um, and even on the Internet, you know, there's not it's not like a widespread thing where these are talked about constantly. Um. I do think the discussion of I, yeah I I just want to point that out that it's very impressive that he he shows such a such knowledge about this and even about uh, knowledge about 
similar structures in England. Um, someone in the reading group pointed out that uh, the whole ancient aliens and all that stuff, uh, if you look on the internet, is it, it will come up. These these mounds, these serpent uh, serpent hills in in the eastern in the eastern uh, seaboard. Um, some people do think that they are related to aliens helping, uh, or aliens building them themselves, which is kind of the ultimate in racism in some ways. Um, yeah, I don't, I, it's just fun to think about, you know, like why, like, I don't, I haven't actually been to any of them, obviously, as I've said, but it's really fun to just think about, you know, like what's the point of it? You know, like, I don't, I, I, I do think that there have been people that have entered some of them and even accidentally destroyed some of them. And I do want to say that there are things like pottery shards and stuff like that that have been found uh, in and around some of these mounds. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't. I, I really want to visit one of them, number one. Uh, their connection to the whole Leyden jar thing is also interesting. Uh, the fact that there does seem to be some type of link between, um, and I'm not really sure where Pynchon is getting this besides kind of his own zany uh, mind, but, um, and I think we've gone over the fact that Leyden jars are a bit of an anachronism in this book, but um, the fact that, you know, that seems to be kind of, instead of electrical energy, they do seem to hold some kind of, some type of spiritual energy, um, which is interesting to think about. Um, Yeah, it does. I mean, it does make you wonder, you know, like how Pynchon knew about these is if Pynchon has visited them himself. Um, if he went, you know, did he have a guide whenever he went? Did he, you know, um, it does seem to be Pynchon does seem to present these mounds as as inherently holy um, as a sort of uh, perhaps like a. An inherent vice, at least in the movie, and I want to say in the book too, but at least in the movie, um, whenever Doc Sportello is kind of bullshitting people about him wanting to be an investor in the mental hospital, I want to say he talks about the uh, the shocker points of of the of the American continent, uh, which does kind of bring to mind, you know, his the, the, his description of these of these mounds in this book. Um, as if, and I'm not a, I'm not a, you know, and I, I, Chinese spirituality is invoked in this section as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, there's a lot going on here that I'm having a little bit of trouble unpacking in my brain, but um, it does seem to be that, you know, Pynchon does seem to view these, these mounds as some type of uh, fulcrum for uh, spiritual energies. And um he does seem to be kind of showing a, an amount of respect to uh, Native American religions and, you know, possible um, the, the different possibilities that are latent in these mounds in terms of their religious and uh, cultural significance to past people, people of the past. Yeah, I, I mean, the only reason I know about Indian mounds is simply because I have lived in the Midwest my entire life and there are a lot of them that you can go visit. Um, there seems to be a particularly high concentration of them, at least in, in the Midwestern states, from what I can tell. I don't know how widespread they are in, in other portions of the country, but they're very impressive. I've I've been to see a couple of them, um, some of which are, are absolutely massive, that ha now have, you know, these, these kind of wooden observation platforms that you can walk up 
to to look down at the kind of indent at the top of the mound, and some of which are pretty small. And you are right that a, a few of them have been destroyed due to excavation efforts to understand what they're built out of and and how they were they were put together. Uh, the the actual Mason and Dixon wiki on the the, the Pinchon wiki has links to a couple of different ones that have been um, unfortunately destroyed, or it might have been actually the the Reddit group post where they they linked to a few of them. But that's the only way that I would have known of that Pinchon had potentially seen them or heard of them. And I mean, also, I wouldn't be surprised if there's some in upstate New York where he kind of went to college and was from, because that is also, uh, there's there's a a fairly large indigenous population there too. I I, I do find them very interesting. And I, I think there is something inherent about the shape and design of them and the symbology of them relating to kind of mother earth and and being symbolic of of giving life you know according to at least a few of the write-ups that i i found the the best understanding we have of what they might have been for was that it was kind of representative of the womb that humanity emerged from in in native spirituality that could be wrong but that was sort of the answer that i was able to find there there seems to be somewhat of a link between that and the you know sort of mild spoilers the the entrance to the hollow earth as far as how that looks almost as a as a sort of representative gateway of what that looks like and you know kind of referencing back to the the article that brett had linked to us a week ago which i found very interesting which i won't you know spend 30 minutes going through an explanation of there seems to be something representative between that entrance to the hollow earth and you know, a, a connection to spirituality or a staving off of spiritual death due to modernity. So there, there could be something there that Pinchon is pointing to in in using this as as a representative of something like that, and how potentially a a people that are not as obsessed with with drawing you know these lines of latitude and and in building cities and states and in property ownership and all of that may have an easier understanding of sort of the mother earth or the dragon or or these spiritual aspects that can can kind of stave off death of the soul or death of the spirit that Pinchon seems particularly worried of as a result of modernity but that that would be sort of the best guesses that I have as to why these are included in here and what they they may mean do you have anything uh will that that you've come across or or thought about in relation to these yeah so the these mounds are primarily associated with the regions that that you were referring to the midwest and then the south and they're they're often ascribed to what's called the mississippi culture which was a i believe a broad set of tribes in north america that uh were very active and uh urban between the thousand ce and around 1300 ce and uh i i you know, I wouldn't be terribly surprised if Pinchon, given his general interest in indigenous culture, had been following, you know, journals of Native American studies or archaeology um, that that were publishing in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s. There was a lot of reevaluation of this evidence we had uh, of, of these ancient cultures. And... During that period, the, the the 80s, I believe, it was come to 
not a conclusion, obviously. Archaeology is always changing, always collecting more evidence. But the Mississippi cultures were, were are at this point assumed to have been urban developments, and they built these mounds either as a very like a, like a very audacious version of landfills, essentially turning landfills into something to be proud of in, in an interesting way, which would explain why they're full of like refuse and broken shards of pottery. Um, or that there was some kind of hybrid thing where historically, and archaeologists uh, know this, it's how we found Troy. If you just dig into current cities where people live, there are going to be layers of strata which you can continue to dig under and find ancient evidence of peoples. And so people, archaeologists, kind of assume that these mounds are either those giant trash piles that have been turned into something of a holy thing, or were uh, essentially like a, an intentional foundation of their cities, and they kept building up rather than out as as a as part of their social structure hmm. which explains why um they find these stones that, that shelby picks up and he, he ascribes to what language as a welsh some welsh yeah anywho it, he picks up the rocks and th th those are real there are real like, inscriptions in these mounds and it's, it seems like it might have been an some sort of ritual practice where they made pottery and wrote things into it and then shattered it to build the mound. Anywho, none of that, uh, none of that information, I think, disagrees with any of what either of you were saying. I think that you both kind of circumscribed what the purpose of the mound in the book is doing. Um, and I, I don't, I don't see them necessarily as more. For the per for the purpose of this plot, I don't see them as more than another instance of these these themes colliding, I guess, mm -hmm. and seeing it as yet again, not just is Zhang Zhang is not just crazy. The Chinese are not just crazy. <laughs> mm -hmm. There is something going on here. There it might not be a dragon of the earth. It might not be a laden jar of human stuff. But it, it, there is some kind of layering, there is some kind of power that is being formed here that was formed intentionally by previous people for a reason, and to just clear a path is not the way, clearly. Yeah, true enough. And, you know, I, I, I like the fact that you're bringing up the fact that, that Zhang is not just crazy, because as we we talk more with him over the course of these chapters... Mason and Dixon are no longer kind of outwardly not hostile, but maybe dismissive of the things that he says. Suddenly, they've kind of undergone a private uh, conversion or some sort of privately moved towards open-mindedness, and we get a lot more um, time with that character and a lot more space for him to kind of pontificate on things. So you're you're absolutely right about that. And that kind of forms a good segue if we didn't have anything else to add to the to the mounds, to the bit of discussion of, of Chinese philosophy that comes up in this chapter too, or spiritualism or, or whatever term you might want to use there. What do, um, 
do we have anything to to add with this section of the chapter from anyone? Um, I forget if it's. I'm trying to look if I, yeah, I don't think it's in this chapter where Zhang talks about how China is like an alien planet that that crashes the crash. Oh yeah, it is this chapter. Um, I'll just read, I guess, at least a section of it. China, China may have may once have been another planet. Captain Zhang is now speculating embedded into the earth through some very slow collision long ago, all populated with this language and customs arriving from the east, northeast, aiming for the Pacific, overshoots, plows into Asia, pushes up the Himalaya range, comes to rest intact, uh, which is how until the first Christian travelers it remains. Uh, which the ending of that does seem to imply that the the um the in, maybe not the invasion but the the coming of, of people from the west uh the 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 presence of christian missionaries and stuff like that did seem to kind of uh affect china negatively um and it, it is kind of an interesting you know like we the, the word alien is an interesting one in in the word in the english language you know cuz it can mean somebody from a different country it can mean somebody from a different planet i uh, can you know it's it's um it's an interesting word, um, and I, to, to kind of summarize why I bring that up specifically is because you know I don't have a lot of experience with China and Chinese culture. Um, I used to work at a Chinese food place that did have a fair amount of uh, Chinese immigrants that worked there, uh, but that is literally pretty much the only direct experiences that I ever had with Chinese culture. Um, and there is a certain kind of foreignness to it. Um, even just the fact that I think it's the Pitchin Wiki gets into this, how Chinese medicine is pretty mainstream in China and other parts of Asia. Whereas in America, it's viewed as a, um, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't think the layman in America is going to view Chinese medicine as, um, as equal to or higher than, American medicine or Western medicine. Um, it does. Chinese medicine does seem to kind of occupy this strange zone between legitimate and illegitimate where it's, it's maybe not viewed as either. Um, it's not viewed as completely legitimate, but it's also not viewed as completely illegitimate. Uh, you know, I've, I've had family members that have, um, gotten, uh, had, a. Uh, I'm blanking right now. The uh, the thing where you stick the needles in acupuncture. Acupuncture. Yeah, I've had family. I've had family members who are pretty conventional, straightforward people get acupuncture and speak highly of it um, and stuff. I don't. I think you guys get what I'm saying. Where you know, like Chinese culture can be viewed as as very. I don't want to use the word strange, but I think the word alien and the word foreign are a little bit more uh, apropos in terms of. Um, how different Chinese culture is from from Western culture. Yeah, you're kind of talking around a lot of uh, what is now styled uh, Orientalism. Yeah. The, this kind of idea that this meme that we've had in our in Western culture, big quotes around that um, since the time of, you know, the Iliad, the, where we're framing people who are from basically any country east of Turkey as a place full of, you know, strange, effeminate men and masculine, sexually aggressive women. 
it's i mean it's it's a whole subject of study and i think that uh as honestly better than i would expect uh at this point a 60 year old man when when this was published 97 uh to to handle you know essentially just him taking a, a blind swing at how orientalism is part of what what america is at this point given the mm-hmm you know essentially a century of exploiting chinese immigrants for the sake of uh, building infrastructure uh, i think i i don't want to go any deeper into it because i i know a little bit about chinese culture but i definitely don't know enough to make any kind of uh you know quality judgment on the character of Captain Zhang mm-hmm. uh, as a representative of Chinese culture. Uh, but I don't think that's the point either. I do think that he is an icon, and that, that may be worth criticizing, but I think that as an icon, he is pretty entertaining and also pretty insightful. It is nice to have this person who is framed as different being the one who is probably the least weird point of view for a modern reader at least in these sections of the book yeah that's a fair point <laughs> he he does seem to to offer some degree of spiritual enlightenment to mason and dixon i mean shelby certainly you know shrugs him off and complains about whether or not they even need to listen to him but you know for mason and dixon he does seem to be opening up a different realm of understanding or at least opening up their their minds to accept that there are other explanations for for what is going on which sort of brings us to the the hollow earth theory discussion which comes directly after Zhang and this quote that I'm about to read comes from 602 which uh ends with one of my one of my favorite jokes from these from these chapters uh where it says, consider we have an outer and inner surface, haven't we? Which mathematically tis easy, using fluxions to warp and smooth by small continuous changes into a toroid with openings at either end leading to... Hold! cries Mason, an inner, surf- an inner surface. Are you by chance seeking analogy between the human body and the planet Earth? The Earth has no inner surface, Dixon. Have you been to its ends to see? Though I come from pretty far north, Stig puts in, yet there's a lot more north, north even of that out of which now and then a sail will appear upon the horizon, a snowcraft approach all the day long, and at evening at last put in her a little village. Everyone crowds into the inn by the light of bare fat candles to drink cloudberry flip and listen to the visitors' tales of a dark, great cavity up there, mirrored overhead as by a water sky, funnel-shaped leading inside the earth to another world. Grant me patience, O Lord, Mason with a bleak expression, holding his head, when tis not the eleven days missing from the new style, or the cock lane ghost yet abides the hollow earth, as a proven lure and sanctuary to all that too lightly bestow their faith. Why, snorts Dixon, half of all the philosophers in Durham are hollow earthers. That accounts for Emerson, hisses Mason, who is the other again? <laughs> Which is one of my favorite jokes uh, of these five chapters, but the the whole section is pretty great, and even though I, I still have not read against the day 
the hollow earth connection to against the day was elucidated in the article that that brett sent us called the far invisible which again i would highly recommend everyone read it's in the show notes for the last episode um so it's clear that this is something that 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 pinchon takes a very serious lens towards and and uses as some sort of thematic intent to to describe something spiritual within within humanity and that it's it's adjusted and changes as time goes forward and as we we push forward into to modernity so do we have any thoughts on on the hollow earth being included here and the conversation that that arrives as a result of that and how it may relate to some of the stuff that's going on in these chapters well i guess the first thing that comes to my mind is really what what immediately follows this which is, you know, stepping into the next chapter. Sorry to jump ahead a bit, but I think it's relevant. Yeah. Stig unveils himself as not a Swede, as somebody from a further north land. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that there is one reading that says that he is uh, Sami. However, the, the Sami do not have pale skin. I mean, they do, but not paler than Swedish people. Yeah. Not translucent, almost. <laughs> yeah, which is essentially what he's implying. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm. I. I. It, is he saying that he is a ho- a hollow earther? Is that is that what how we're supposed to connect these dots? Because you know this is the first time in chapter sixty one is the first time that Stig says anything other than yingle yangle, and then in <laughs> sixty two is when we actually get um, his. A companion of sorts, uh, taking note of the fact that he's speaking, and that 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 this is uh, this is a section that almost makes me in, in another author's book would make me say it seems like the editors put these in the wrong order or mm-hmm. something, because it genuinely does feel like a continuity issue to have Stig speak in this chapter. And to have the the immediately next one have him reveal things that would kind of give him reason to say the things he does in chapter 61. Yeah, true. So given the way that it is set up the way that it is set up, do you think there's anything purposeful in the way that, that Pinchon is doing it? Because I, 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 I did think that as well as I kind of glazed back over the chapters with some of the free time today to to make sure that they're fresh in my mind as to to why he would have this first statement as you know being so far north and then occasionally seeing a ship from even far north farther north coming over the horizon and then having him reveal it is it is it literally just that he wasn't intending to reveal where he was really from and kind of ended up having to in 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 the, the the following chapter or you know is there any thoughts that you have as far as why pinch on would structure it that way as far as i'm concerned i'm starting to think about you know the the way that he speaks in each of these chapters is slightly different mm-hmm. that it, it does seem almost like an intentional error of the sort that like cherry coke would have made um, as just like, oh, Stig is in this scene, might as well have him say the thing. Um, and then have that basically later on inspire Cherry Coke as he's telling a story to to include that. To include the explanation of, oh, look, no, yeah, Stig can talk. It is a big deal. Here's the conversation that it happened in. 
And what about you, Luke? Do you have any thoughts on any of this portion of chapter 61? Um, not too much. Uh, I do find it an entertaining part. Um, I did really enjoy it. Uh, I just don't really have much to kind of draw out of it. Um, yeah. All right. So I guess that brings us sort of to chapter 62 with, with how Will has kind of moved the segue there naturally. Um, we open up with another, with another snowstorm and you know, another snowball fight, just like what we have from the beginning of the book, except this time it isn't children throwing them at each other. It's, it's grown adults. Uh, and we learn that, that Mason has some sort of self-awareness now at being a character in a story and also sleep talks, but in a different language. Um, any thoughts from the, the, the beginning of the chapter before we get into the stuff with, with Stig? Uh, I do think it's interesting that the whole discussion of Mason perhaps being possessed by some person who doesn't speak English and is looking for a sleeping body to possess. Um, I found that very interesting to think about. It's something that I hadn't really encountered before. Um, that whole line of inquiry, line of thought. Um, it is interesting. I think I've mentioned this before, but people, a lot of scholars seem to kind of pigeonhole, and perhaps correctly pigeonhole, Mason as a, as more spiritually inclined, more more apt, more apt to believe in the supernatural than other characters in the book. Um, which it, even in chapter sixty one, he he seems to be scared of the mound and like it's it's possible, invisible protectors and different stuff. Um, I do think it's interesting to kind of view Mason through that lens as perhaps you could you could either view it as being spiritually in tune with the with what's going on around him. You could, you could view it as him being gullible. Uh, there's a few different ways you could view that these characteristics of, of Mason. Um, that's all I really had for the, for the chapter before the, before we say kind of takes over. Yeah, I think, I think that's a completely understandable reading. Yeah, Will, go ahead. I, I guess to me, it, it reads as kind of the, the final piece of the puzzle to point out this this whole idea that's been happening the whole the whole book has a lot of the conversations between Mason and Dixon have been about okay did we really want to come here oh no we didn't <laughs> so why what is going on here why are we here who is in charge here who's making the decisions and i i don't you know I, i'm not taking uh, what what you said too literally here because I, I don't think you meant it that way, and I don't think that Pynchon does. But I, I don't, you know, I would read the Mason's pontificating about whose story they're in is less less to do with a, a literal being in a storybook, um, and much more to do with just the general idea of protagonists are supposed to move the plot. Mm-hmm. And these are two protagonists who do not move the plot per se. Yeah. They are they're in charge of this line, they are in charge of people who do the axe cutting, they measure the stars and they make sure that they continue on in a straight line. That's all they've ever done is take observations. And we are observing their observations. And so here we just have an instance of 
the observer being taken over by somebody else. Just a, a final instance of control being given. Uh, but this time, instead of it being, you know, begrudging, all right, fine, I'll go do the job. I can't get any other work. It, it is ultimately, you know, I'm going to sleep and then somebody's in my body and doing what I don't want to be doing, which is apparently speaking in a language. Yeah. Some language. Yeah, I suppose I should clarify. I, I don't mean uh, aware that he is a character in the story in the same way that, you know, like Lenore Beadsman in The Broom of the System by David Foster Wallace becomes aware that she's the character in the story. Um, you know, more so in in the sense that, to your to exactly your point, he, he is not responsible necessarily for the way things are, are, are moving forward. He is uh, at the behest of something else that he still does not understand. Yeah, so that does bring us to to all of the stuff with Stig in chapter 62 and the the revelation that he is of this further north, even more intensely white group of people um, that does have some references to, to real history. We do know that there was some group of, of Northmen that, that did make their way to the U.S. far prior to uh, the establishment of, of the United States and, and far prior to the, the quote-unquote discovery of the New World by Christopher Columbus. The specific sort of reference um, that he, he gives, and I'll, I'll just quote this directly from the, the discussion guide that was posted on, on the Reddit because I think they sum it up pretty well. Um, the poetic description refers to, uh, I'm not going to attempt to, to pronounce the, the name of this Icelandic bishop, but an Icelandic bishop who brought the Edda and other Icelandic manuscripts to Copenhagen. Iceland was a Danish colony at that time that comprised nearly all written knowledge we have today of pre-Christian slash Norse Viking society. Included in these manuscripts is an account of the kings in Vinland, the eastern edge of North America. Archaeology has found a single Viking settlement in North America, the briefly inhabited trading post Lahansau Meadow at the tip of Newfoundland. A thing I particularly love about this passage is how it captures the mysticism of the Viking sea journeys in the far north. Their own writings contain incredible descriptions of weather and other natural phenomena they encountered that suggest some sort of ancient and magical world. So that's the the sort of historical description provided by the individual who wrote the, the Reddit description for, for these chapters. What did we think about this section of chapter 62? Uh, I mean, beyond the, the Vineland reference, I didn't really uh, draw too much away. From the section, uh, it is nice. You know, this book does have some intertextuality, as we've talked about, even with books, you know, other than Against the Day. Um, that's one of the things I love most about Pynchon is how all of his books seem to kind of take place in this alternate universe that is both, like, very similar to and also in some key ways very different from our own. Um, just, you know, the the, the, the term Vineland coming up. Um, which I do think it'll be interesting to, if slash when we get to Vineland, it'll be interesting to kind of view it through the lens of, um, it being what the, what the ancient, uh, Vikings called, uh, America. Generally the, the whole discussion, I think it's in this chapter by Stig about how he's from so far North that they like Englishmen look like Africans or something to him and stuff. I found that very interesting. Um, it did make me wonder if he's, if he's talking about how, you know, like you go so far North over the North pole, you hit Russia. 
Uh, I don't know if he's necessarily talking about Russia or if he's talking about some kind of, um, you know, in in this time period, they may not have. I I don't. I'm not a. Uh, you know, I'm not a an expert on maps and surveying from around this time period, but it it is interesting that, and something that I think has been interesting about this whole book at large is that the time period where, you know, somebody like Stig could claim that he comes from a land, you know, even further north than the North Pole, and nobody can like pull out their phone and pull out Google Earth and just be like, no, no, you're no, you know, like no, you're not, you know, that's not real. Um, it it's and the, the that, that kind of stuff comes up a lot in this book, I think, where there are some, you know, the lambton worm, um, you know, you can't just sit there and Google, you know, is the lambton worm real, uh, while somebody's telling you this story, um. Which seems kind of obvious, I guess. Uh, but I, I, you know, I was alive uh, before the internet became ubiquitous, uh, and I do remember having to look stuff up in in encyclopedias and stuff whenever I was very young, um, and not having search engines constantly at at the at you know just in my hand. Um, I, I do think that there's an aspect of that in this book where, as I was kind of talking about with Mason being gullible, um. You know, at this around this time period, even with the Hollow Earth stuff, you know, there Mason, I think, does kind of try to disprove what Dixon is saying through the use of science. And I want to say it's uh, Sir Isaac Newton. He he uh, he references in terms of uh, the heaviness of of the Earth uh, in comparison to the heaviness of water. Um, but it just I and this actually came up a little bit whenever I was doing some research into the history of science fiction in general. Uh, is that during this time period, you know, there this is the time period where science fiction did seem to kind of experience its kind of like proto-science fiction phase before uh, the publication of, of Frankenstein kind of launched the, the genre into its current existence, its current kind of definitions, um, where there was a, a fair amount of kind of fantasy uh, slash science fiction being written it's just it was a bit um it's unclear if you know like I, I think that you you could definitely have written something like um Frankenstein or something like you know like Journey to the Center of the Earth or like different Jules Verne and H.G. Wells type books you know like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea you could have claimed you could have written something like that in the 1700s and claimed it to be real and um well quite learned people, people that are, you know, were very smart and scholarly could probably disprove what you said, you know, the, a layman in, in some random bar in uh, Philadelphia or something might actually believe you whenever you tell the story. Um, it It is, we, in some ways it's, it was kind of like the wild west, but instead of um, like, a, like physical danger and, um, religious freedom and all this different stuff. It was kind of like the Wild West in terms of what was believed and what was not believed. Where I, I do think that a lot of the uh, kind of more fantastical and um, I, I think that we underrate how much people of this time period probably believe some pretty crazy stuff uh, just because somebody told them that it was true, I guess is kind of to summarize what I'm getting at. And what about you, Will? So uh, as as the two of you know, I just finished reading a book that's all about how the Vikings came to uh, came, came to North America. 
And one of the interesting things I found in it was uh, a lot of hand-drawn maps. This was the, the book I'm talking about is The Ice Shirt by William Volman for any listeners. Highly recommend it for anybody vaguely interested in the subject matter. Um, but in it, he included a recreation of what is called the Skalholt map made by a teacher, an Icelandic teacher named Sigurd Stefansson in 1570 that um, I can't find a, a decent quality scanner picture of the actual map. So based on the, based on the copy that Volman drew here, it has uh, Greenland and Norway across east-west from each other and southeast of Norway is Sweden. Um, but north of all of it is Jotunheim, which is, you know, the Arctic. So I, I think that there's one reading that says that according to the, the you know, ac according to the Viking myths that, that, you know, Stieg here is representing, I guess, he is a troll. And he may be a, a troll from Jotunheim. He may be a troll from somewhere deeper. Because it, within the, the whole Norse worldview was this idea that we are, we are kind of on a torus. You know, mm -hmm. Earth is in the middle and on top of us, but also to the east of us is Asgard. And below us, but also to the west of us is... Uh, Muspelheim, I think. But if you go far enough north in Jotunheim, the troll lands, the Arctic wastes, you do eventually get to Muspelheim too. You you get you get to hell. You get to all these places just by continuing in a single direction. So it might be that you know Stig is a troll. He might be a a an, an inner earther. Uh, he might be an alien. Or he might just be like a guy screwing with these people. But I basically do read it as him being either from the the earth or the inner earth, or as some kind of, you know, quasi-human that is that has now vanished from our planet. And, and as far as what that implies, I think that, I think there's a lot to read into with the way that race is handled in all of Pinchon's books. But it, with particular regard to the idea of, you know, Anglos looking... Motorcycles? <laughs> Ang <laughs> with particular regard to Anglos looking black compared to these far Northmen, mm -hmm. I, I think that there's a lot to, to, to be... Dis dug into there just about the, the utter meaninglessness of race. Yeah. I, I see it as essentially just, like, you know, these these English people went around claiming themselves as superior for hundreds of years, and then, you know, in the 1930s and 40s, in 40s the Germans declared themselves as superior to everybody else to the point where they can just get rid of everyone who isn't them. And... This, I think, is supposed to be kind of a seed for that of, yeah, these these people didn't come up with the idea themselves, or if they did, it was something that is intrinsic to the ways that we think about the world. 
And so it's not a matter of English people are bad, German people are bad, white people are bad, because these people show up from essentially nowhere, and they're whiter than any of them, and they have the same ideas of racial superiority. They have the same ideas of colonialism and ownership. And I think there's uh, one one way to read a lot of what Pynchon says, essentially as saying that like intrinsic to being a white person is is this kind of domination. But I think if you flip that dynamic around, uh, it, it's a little more coherent. And that would basically be to say that this culture of domination enforces these people in, into a, a system where they can see no alternative. And there's, you know, whole theses written about this, so I'm not going to continue. But I, I think that's basically what I get from it. Yeah, I, I think that I come away with, with as it relates specifically to, to Stig's comments on on race and referring to, to the Swedes as swarthy compared to them, that really evokes to me the semi-famous quotations from Benjamin Franklin on German immigrants, because he referred to them as, as swarthy as well, in addition to Spaniards, Italians, French, and Russians, and Swedes. So you have... A man who is a white, you know, former Englishman already drawing such a distinction between people from the same continent that he is from. And if you were to look at a German man or a Swede or to, you know, depending upon what area of Russia a a Russian man compared to him, they're going to look basically the same. Not to mention the French being thrown into those quotes that Benjamin Franklin has written uh it's it's pretty insane so it was something that was already beginning at the time and you know i i I don't know if if pinchon is making a a direct reference to that uh but i i I certainly wouldn't be surprised if he was at least familiar with with that particular treatise of ben franklin uh, that he wrote i believe it was just random thoughts that he put down in a letter to someone that 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 was close to him but that was what it directly reminded me of in in reading through these uh quotes and especially as it relates to the subsequent conversation with Zhang where Zhang is talking about bad history and separating humanity by lines and degrees and the inherent violence that comes with that it certainly does seem as though Pinchon is getting at an idea that we draw a lot of arbitrary boundaries between one another obviously a a, a the Mason and Dixon line is not an arbitrary boundary, it is a physical boundary, but that inherently is, is something that is part of our nature as, as humans, and doing so only leads to, to, to violence or devastation over the long run. Yeah, to kind of jump off from the you mentioning the, the bad history and the, the right line and stuff. Yeah. Um, in that same conversation, um, Dixon seems to... Um, be pretty adamant that Pennsylvania and Maryland are very, are quite different because of um because of the difference in 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 terms of uh which one where where slavery is legal and where slavery is illegal um Mason seems to goad him it says the word goad in there to you know kind of offer a counterpoint to that um I do think it's really interesting that Zhang points out, you know, if you think you see no slaves in Pennsylvania, why look again? They're not all African, nor do some of them even yet know, may never know that they are slaves. Um, 
I do think the pension does run the risk of minimizing slavery in that in that paragraph. I don't think he does. And I do think I know what he's talking about, where, you know, even if you want to take it in a very literal way, there would have been indentured servants around this time uh, of all races. Um, and I do think that that Captain Zhang uh, in perhaps a kind of intentional foreshadowing of China being uh, communist, turning communist in the 20th century, is that Zhang does seem to be offering up a uh, a criti- critique of capitalism. Um, I do think the phrase uh, wage slave can be a little overused and, like I said, kind of minimize the terrible aspects of, of actual slavery. Um, but I do think that that is at least an aspect of what Pynchon is getting at in that section. Um, the The phrase slavery is very old upon these shores. That comes up in a lot of like a very like a very high percentage of of pension scholarship that mentions Mason and Dixon. We'll we'll drop in that quote. Um, and uh, it you know Pynchon does point out there is no innocence uh, upon the practice anywhere, um, which is is a good thing for him to point out, especially in the context of that paragraph. Um, I do kind of wonder exactly what Pynchon means by slavery is very old upon these shores. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not necessarily, I don't know if, I don't necessarily, I haven't really heard a lot of, I don't know if Native Americans were enslaved by white, by white settlers. Um, I don't necessarily know if, as was the case in Africa, if Native American tribes were selling each other into slavery. Um, it's kind of a big blank in my in my knowledge. Um, so I do kind of wonder what Pynchon really means by slavery is very old upon these shores. If he's trying to kind of offer up some type of commentary on pre-Columbian uh, Native American societies, uh, if he's just talking about, you know, I think at this point, you know, the... Columbus would have discovered North America about almost 300 years before this. So, you know, 300 years uh, would qualify as very old. Um, And I do think that Columbus did kind of capture, take people prisoner and bring them back to Europe whenever he came. I want to say that that's a thing. Uh, He definitely um, kidnapped women and uh, stuff like that. I know that for sure, just from quotes I've seen. Uh, but that whole conversation is very interesting, and it, it does um, one, probably one of the probably the second or third most interesting piece of scholarship I've come across about this book. As I've mentioned before, it does get into a lot of Dixon becoming increasingly mad and increasingly frustrated with his own role in um, kind of keeping the the racist uh, civilization, the kind of racist power structures that he serves and is paid by, uh, it does seem to be a, a, a an, an issue that is kind of, uh, bubbles up, uh, from time to time. And, uh, we'll see the kind of consequences for his, uh, repression of those feelings in maybe 10 chapters, nine chapters. Um, but I find that whole, I find that whole conversation very interesting. Uh, it, it is the kind of thing that, um, you know, you could write a, a 20 page scholarly paper just about these these like five or six paragraphs, um, I think. And, you know, that's kind of 
one of the one of the things that makes Pynchon so special is that he can kind of um you know perhaps cross a line perhaps i'm not saying he actually did uh but if you were to say he did i wouldn't necessarily argue with you too vehemently um and then he kind of pulls back and says you know there is no innocence upon slavery anywhere uh which is you know what i'm saying like it, it does seem to be he does seem to be kind of striding certain lines uh with a surprising amount of delicacy um I do think that this is kind of one of the best examples in the book so far of him um, addressing these issues in a very um, kind of layered and uh, really fun to think about way. Yeah, I agree. And I'm glad that you brought up the, the slavery is very old upon these shores quote, because that was, you know, Something that relates directly to a quote that Stig says, which I'll I'll read out because I, I find it particularly good. Do any of you know, Stig inquires, what I have come down to you out of? The frost eternal, the whiteness abounding. Beneath that all-night sun, in the Royal Library in Copenhagen lies an ancient vellum manuscript, a gift from Bishop Brynjolf to Frederick III, containing tales of the first Northmen in America, of those long winters and the dead, dread miracles that must come to pass before spring. The blood, the ghosts and fetches, the prophecies in second sight, and the melancholy suggestion that the new continent Europeans found had been long attended from its own ancient days by murder, slavery, and the poor fragments of a magic irreparably broken. So I, I think that sort of what Stig is getting at there is is certainly related to the, the slavery is very old upon these shores quote, because he is suggesting, obviously, that there is something inherently violent or or murderous that is being done on the land you know all the way back to to these these northmen that arrived there and and, and called it vinland at least from the ones that that were able to come back and i know i've brought it up in the past but it's another moment where i'm reminded of the short story the midnight meat train if you haven't read it yet by clive barker i'd highly recommend it he makes the same argument towards the end of that short story that there is a long history of violence and um, blood being spilled in this land inherently. And so I did do some research uh, in in this particular aspect. I knew that obviously there was slavery being practiced by, you know, white or, or European colonizers prior to the establishment of the colonies. You know, obviously Columbus took slaves. There was a whole bunch of slavery of indigenous peoples happening prior to the establishment of the triangle slave trade and the the narrow passage crossing. But um, according to uh, some articles that I found by the Smithsonian Institute for the, the Museums of Indigenous Peoples, there is a particularly interesting essay uh, entitled, what was it called? Um, the Other Slavery, where... It says, uh, and I quote, Indigenous slavery long predated the arrival of Europeans in the Americas, as far back as we can peer into pre-contact monuments, codices, and archaeological evidence, as well as the earliest European accounts we learn about Indigenous Americans enslaving one another. The Maya and Aztec took captives to use as sacrificial victims. The Iroquois waged mourning wars on neighbors to avenge and replace their dead. Native groups along the North Pacific coast finalized elite marriages by exchanging enslaved people and so on. These practices of bondage were embedded in specific cultural contexts. Europeans tapped into them and went on to commodify and expand them in ways that would have been unimaginable in earlier times. By the 17th century, 
Mapuche captives from southern Chile were marched to the port of Valparaiso, shipped all the way to Peru. Unpaid Apache laborers from northern Mexico were taken as far south as Cuba and as far north as Canada, and enslaved people from Asia were transported across the Pacific to work in cities and mines in North America. Over the centuries, forms of enslavement changed character from culturally specific native practices to broader imperial and seniorial labor arrangements such as economindas and repartimentos, to more economic-based forms of bondage such as debt, payage, until the arrangements came to resemble the kinds of human trafficking that would become recognizable to us today. It is tempting to think of indigenous slavery in the early colonial period, a set of practices that fell into disuse once Africans were brought to the Americas in sufficient numbers. In reality, native slavery in its many guises coexisted with African slavery all along and proved nearly impossible to eradicate. So the 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 full paper is is much longer, but those are two particular paragraphs that kind of explain the the gist that it is something that has been present in uh, both what we would call North and South America for a very very long time, as well as Central America, and has been practiced by different indigenous groups against one another, by early European arrivals on indigenous groups. And then, obviously, we have the the slave trade that everyone is is more familiar with in an American context. So there is certainly plenty of of violence inherent and and slavery inherent to the the land over the course of history. So I'm glad you brought that up because that that provided me an easy segue to to all of that information because I I do think that it is something that Pinchon is hinting, hinting at without spending six pages going over, which he easily could have done. But it would feel probably very, very um, shoehorned in in these in these sections. Yeah, and it, it, I I really like the choice of Zhang as the as the speaker of that little paragraph there. If only because it it brings back brings us back to this lovely little thing. Uh, essentially, we we have to keep in mind that Zhang is a captain of something. Um, he's an astronomer and a surveyor from China. He just told us, or well, he will just tell us a story all about how hard it is to be an astronomer in China, how much weight is put on your observations and on being accurate. And for, furthermore, there's, uh, I've talked about it a couple of times, there's this uh, traditionally framed divide in Chinese politics and philosophy between uh, Confucianism for public things and Taoism for private things. And the way it tends to work is that the higher you up are higher you are up on the social ladder, generally the more that the Taoist principles uh, are accessible to you as anything other than a way of training yourself to uh, let go of pain. And so what we have here is somebody who you know, right now he's a renegade, but in his earlier life may have been in a situation a lot like Sharon Ho, where he's just kind of a guy who's told to get the measurements right and do it perfectly. And uh, it'll be your head if you don't get it perfect. And mm -hmm. at the same time, his personal philosophy as a scientist is going to be much more of this, uh, I'm not going to say nihilistic, but semi-nihilistic worldview of Taoism, where there's much less control, where it is much more inherently anarchistic. And in the Tao Te Ching, there is discussion of how rulers will rule. And that's what they do. 
So all in, in this little segment, you have all of this commentary on history, like you like you've just brought up, Kate. Uh, as well as the more general political stuff, which is relevant given the publication of this book, Luke, thank you, um, tied together with this very real, at the time, character, very realistic, obviously he's not a real character or realistic character really, but a believable character of a Chinese astronomer who knows better than to believe that people who are high up on the social ladder are even not not necessarily slaves. All right, so does anyone have anything else for chapter 62 before we go to 63? I don't. No, I think that's all. Okay. Just as a just as a brief end note on that chapter, Cody did include here uh Sweden did in fact have an initial claim on the land as mentioned by Stig, at least according to some service level research I did. New Sweden was indeed granted to William Penn in 1681, and more land was taken from the Swedes in 1682 and 1683. The Swedes had a non-aggression policy, policy in place with the tribes living on the land, which obviously was voided upon the later taking of the land. So there's some additional historical context there. So all of that brings us to the, I believe, shortest chapter of, of this section, chapter 63. Um, it's, it's certainly absurd the concept of a were-beaver. Uh, what did we all think of chapter 63? I mean, it's obviously a very fun, funny uh, mental image. Um, a man-sized beaver uh, competing in a tree-felling competition with a Swedish man who yells yingle yangle. Um, just the whole, you know, I, I do love that Pynchon comes up with his own his own word for werebeavers, uh, castoranthropy. Um, I'm trying to find the quote right now. I do think it is um, notable that, um, I want to say it's in this section, that uh, the, uh, the structures that uh, Zepho builds, Zepho the werebeaver builds um, are kind of like ignored by the actual beavers and um, viewed as kind of pointless um, by the by the beavers. Seemingly, I'm having trouble finding. The um, and I have actually, I don't know if if Will has noticed this, but I have noticed some differences between the version, the audiobook version of the book, and the textual version, um, which is kind of mess with my uh some of my interpretation not interpretations but mess with my head a little bit um it's kind of some small differences i'm not 100 percent if, if they're if i'm mishearing the audiobook or anything um but anyway um yeah i, I mean just the kind of the imagery in this in this section is really good um the it is kind of funny that the prostitutes are kind of acting like uh cheerleaders for stig um <laughs> you know stig strikes for them an athletic pose then another um it is kind of interesting that yeah i mean cherry coke himself seems to be kind of uh excited about reliving this whole thing um though of course the um in the world of this book, it's obviously, you know, if you're if you're viewing the I mean, yeah, I mean, it's just kind of obvious that Cherkov is making a lot of this stuff up throughout the book. 
Um, but you know, he does seem to be get, Cherry Coke himself does seem to kind of be getting carried away with with his own story in this section, which is always it's always fun to read uh, when a narrator is uh, getting carried away with with themselves um, themselves. Uh, yeah, I yeah, this is just a fun a fun chapter. Yeah, it's just very low stakes, just an enjoyable thing. Definitely to your point, likely just a a kind of embellishment by Cherry Coke in order to to stay in the house longer and entertain the kids. It was there may have just been a a contest between two of the axemen to chop down trees, and now he's spinning into this into this crazy thing. But I do like that you brought up the um, the the group of of Mrs. Egg Slaps young ladies being cheerleaders because you could very easily read out their chant that is written in the book in a very like high school cheerleader cadence where you could absolutely read it just just like swing that axe chop that tree on stick onto victory like it it maps really easily to standard sort of meter of cheerleading songs yeah that's very true yeah thanks for thanks for reading it in that meter i I somehow (laughs) avoided that and now that's just going to be looping in my head (laughs) you're welcome Uh, Luke, just out of curiosity, uh, what what sections did you hear is different between the versions? It's just kind of small details. Like I could swear that um, Shelby or Selby, Shelby is is described as being centuries old in the audiobook. I don't. That's not in the in the text. Um, that and uh, whenever I went off about the go- the golem and Kabbalah, um, I remember from the audiobook that the um the order that the kabbalistic order is described as being uh, as as being founded i want to say in the audiobook it says in the in the 3rd or 4th century ad um which i was going to point out um during the recording of that episode that that would be an anachronism because kabbalah did not arise until i think the 13th or the 14th century and that would have then been um and there are I did kind of think of some caveats to this being that being a possible issue and then I looked in the text and it's not in there um and I haven't done the best job of going back to the audiobook and kind of comparing them line by line it has it has occurred to me I know that people on the pitch and subreddit have pointed out um the differences kind of done some deep dives into the differences between the advanced reading copies uh and then the first editions of uh some of pension's books and there are some pretty noticeable differences between the two i want to say at least i've seen a, a prolonged discussion by uh, a, uh somebody that's been on the subreddit for a very long time uh about bleeding edge and the differences between the advanced reading copy and the edition and that that did occur to me is perhaps the audiobook is based on the advanced reading copy rather than the first edition um those huh. are the two that stand out to me, and I don't know why they're both uh, temporally based, um, but yeah. Well, you know, if you notice anything else, uh, you know, we should talk about it because it's interesting. I don't, I haven't noticed anything like that. Yeah, I don't, I, because I usually listen to the audiobook while I'm uh, working, and, and, um, I don't have the best listening comprehension in general, so for, the Kabbalah one, I just kind of chalked it up to, or chalked it up to me, like, you know, being more or less a false memory, but 
Um, like I said, in this section, that's what I noticed the most was that Shelby is just some for some reason described as being centuries old, and then that doesn't come up in the actual text, I want to say. But yeah, I'll, I'll try to keep track of that more. Huh, okay, I'll, I'll go back and re-listen to this section, I guess. Any, anyway, uh, back to the actual substance of this chapter. I, I find it just wonderful how every time something absurd happens, Professor Vohm just acts like he sees it all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, at this point, it's, like, there's the whole question as to whether Timothy talks is crazy or not. But at this point... Like, is Vohm at all a scientist? Or does he just, like, know a few words and bamboozles people? Yeah. Because, uh, castoranthropy, Professor Vohm <laughs> shaking his head, and haven't I seen it do things to a man? Tragic. Like, what are you talking about, dude? No one else has seen this before. I feel like Vohm is to science what Zach Baggins is to ghost, uh, like, TV shows and and haunting culture. Let's not Just... throw stones. <laughs> that that man is notoriously protective of his of his name. He he certainly is. That's the first comparison that comes to mind. You're absolutely right, it's not though. Far off though, yeah, it seems like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the the way Vohm just appears and then is like, oh yeah, all of this makes perfect sense. <laughs> well, and there there are stories. Uh, the the Pynchon goes on to talk about these Indians are certainly no strangers to the idea of a giant beaver, and it you know it's not made up. The there are numerous tribes that have numerous stories about giant beavers, and there are ideas of were beavers there like this is not an idea that Pynchon made up i don't think um but it is just so silly i it is more goofy than anything else so far in the book really i mean seriously you have a naked guy <laughs> with birch wood between his teeth in the final <laughs> moments it's pretty hilarious I, I did love the uh, the use of the phrase, like, that's my husband, when his wife uh, manages to convince him to, to engage in this conversation in order just to just to get money out of it. And as soon as he agrees to that, that's her instant response. That's my husband. Yeah, the pitch and wiki to, to get into the the legends of the giant beaver stuff. Pension wiki does, I think, mention that there are there is a fossil record of. Um, there being uh, up until I think about 15,000 years ago uh, of there being a fossil record of, of giant beavers actually existing, um, which there, you know, I don't, there's, there's a few different things that that kind of brings up for me. And just in terms of there's a, you know, like mammoths or a very large animal and they went extinct um, pretty, pretty quickly around when civilization arose. Um, there is kind of a, a few different types of animals that have a giant version, um, that seems to have gone extinct, uh, around the time of whenever humanity was kind of more ascendant in terms of our dominance of the earth. Um, which does just kind of generally play into some of the, the themes in this book in terms of the effects that civilization has on on nature and on the wilderness um 
Pynchon in general seems to kind of uh, ex- somewhat explore the the negative aspects of civilization throughout his books. Um, and, uh, you know, especially in Gravity's Rainbow, there's, there's that prolonged tangent about the dodos, which is some of the, some of his finest writing, I would I would say. Um, so I, I do think that that's kind of in there a little bit. I would I would expect that Pynchon would, would have at least a cursory knowledge of of some of those, um, you know, some of the the legends slash um, scientific records of of their their existing these types of creatures. Yeah, and in in vogue at this point in time would have been the theory that, and and some people label this a, a racist theory, um, just for disclosure, uh, that this would have been in vogue to say that um, Americans, Native Americans, were the were the reason that these giant animals went extinct. That basically there was. In the in the post glacial period, there was so little edible food in North America, or at least edible to humans, that we they just kept on hunting till there was nothing left. And you know, regardless of the validity of that theory, um, it's definitely one that lines up pretty well with Pynchon's general attitude in this book. Did we all catch the Tammy Wynette reference when Mrs. Egg Slap says, uh, "'Tis hard to be a woman"? I did not clock that until the pension wiki pointed it out. Um, I don't. I don't know if I, I. I. I listened to that song last night actually, and it did kind of. I do. I did really enjoy it like a lot. Kind of made me mad that I hadn't in- encountered it uh, before. And it did kind of generally kind of bring up the uh, some of the stuff that we talked about from the crying of Lot Forty Nine with uh, the Paranoids um, and some of their ballads and stuff. Um, it's yeah, I I really I'm a new fan of that song. I really enjoyed uh, covering it the other night. Yeah, that song has a complicated history that you can you can dig into if you if you want to, and especially the. Mm-hmm the aftermath of it um, all the way up to, to semi-modern times. Yeah, I did not catch that. Ah! Yeah. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> um, do we have anything else to, to add on, on chapter 63? All right, so... Moving into chapter 64, uh, assuming that Will is also good on 63, uh, we have we have the historical retelling um, of the two astronomers whose names I'm not going to to butcher the pronunciation of. Um, the Pinchon wiki is helpful enough to include an article from NASA, of all places, that kind of retells the, the, the true history section of it. So I'll just read that real quick here before we get into the interpretation of the chapter. Um, It is impossible to read ancient Chinese history, astronomical history, without encountering the sad plight of court astrologers. To these two, it is attributed the earliest mention of a total solar eclipse among all ancient records before 2000 BC. Not even the civilization of ancient Egypt 
for which the sun was the chief deity Ra, were total solar eclipses recorded on any extant monument despite a civilization with a written record as far back as 3500 BC. These two court astronomers are believed to have been two astrologers who served the emperor, I'm not going to butcher that name either, around 2134 BC on October 22nd of that year. A total solar eclipse occurred and it is recorded in the Chinese ancient Chinese document Su Ching that the sun and moon did not meet harmoniously. By some accounts, the two astrologers were negligent in their duties and did not foretell the event for the emperor. They were summarily beheaded for their negligence of duty. Given that no one prior to 100 AD could reliably anticipate total eclipses, there must have been quite a few similar events played out over the silent millennia. Some archaeologists dispute that these may have been actual individuals by those names, but that the names may have been those of minor solar deities, making the story an allegory for a ritual that takes place when something goes wrong in the heavens, or that the people were real, but that the names given were their titles. Even the date of the eclipse is merely an educated guess, given that there are several eclipses visible around that time of the century in China. Nevertheless, it is popular and off-sided story even in modern times and supports the view that total solar eclipses were noted in China for thousands of years before they were understood phenomenon involving the moon's motion. So how did we feel about chapter 64? Obviously, everything after they fail to predict the eclipse is, you know, pinch on sort of embellishing and, and, and telling his, his alternate history version of things, as he likes to do. But uh, what do we think? I, I found these two astronomers very similar to Mason and Dixon, certainly. Yeah, that's definitely the first place my mind went, was into essentially just, it, it's, a, it's a little, it's a tiny little allegory to Mason and Dixon. Mm-hmm. It, but it, it is just, and thank you for clicking through to that link on the Pinterest wiki, which I've seen before, never looked at. Uh, I did not know that this was the, essentially a retelling of an infinitely told story in the same way the Lambden Worm tale was. Um, that, that that puts a new a new tilt on it for me. I'm not sure what that new tilt is, but it's there. I, I find the entirety of it very funny because it, it it is fundamentally not a new story. You know, it's people who are put in charge of something don't do their jobs and have to run for their lives a bunch of times. <laughs> but it it really is just straightforwardly like. Hey, you are doing important things here, Mason and Dixon. You are you are doing things that people that, that control people's lives. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in the in the story, Shu and Ho are you know trying to or supposedly trying to help their employers for bets and farming and warfare and all that stuff. And in this case, it's literally Mason and Dixon telling people which. You know, do you live in a place where you can own other humans, or do you live in a place where we supposedly have freedom? It's it's an interesting contrast there, where uh, we have a return of the of the tower imagery, I guess, from the crying of Lot Forty Nine. But this time, the the Mason and Dixon stand-ins are in the tower. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. As Cody Potts points out in his notes for this week. Um... And I think we'll just kind of touch on a little bit and we've touched, I think I might've mentioned this too. Um, earlier on, it, you know, the, the two Chinese astronomers are quite similar to Mason and Dixon in a lot of ways. 
Um, and I'm struggling with the pronunciation, but there's a French term like mise en uh, abim, 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 uh, which is um, you know, like it's it's like a novel within a novel, a story within a story, um, which is a technique that Pynchon uses quite a lot. Uh, as a complete aside, complete tangent that has nothing to do with anything, uh, the, the novel that does that most effectively and most often is for me, that I've come across is Gene Wolfe's novel *Peace*. Uh, I just kind of want to throw that out there as a as a possible recommendation for people if you like stories within the story. Oh, that's uh, a good pull. Yeah, because I think probably over half of that book is stories with the, is the characters telling stories to one another. Yeah. Um, and it's an it's an it's I don't I don't like that book quite as much as some people, but I I it is it is top level uh, Wolf uh, if you're if anyone's interested. Um, and I don't, there's some small details in this section in this chapter that I really like. Um, this might seem a bit like a non sequitur, uh, but I'm going to try to explain myself. Um, last week before we recorded, I did talk with the other co-hosts about the word "fop" in this book, um, and how, at least at first glance, it is scanned to me as possibly a bit homophobic on the part of Pynchon. Um, you know, some of the other co-hosts kind of talked me down from that, and I was also not 100% sure at all, probably not even over 50% sure that that was a thing for Pynchon. Um, it just was kind of haunting around my brain every time Fop would come up as, you know, is he trying to kind of make some type of homophobic joke, um, which I don't think he, he was, and that's neither here nor there in a lot of ways. Uh, but it is, you know, there's a small detail in the in the book, in this section, um, the two astronomers. Um, let me find it. I had it pulled up. Um, it's something about how they're, yeah, they were having sex with courtesans and not all of them were women. Uh, you know, the fact that that's just kind of thrown in there um, nonchalantly does kind of speak to the fact that Pynchon is, you know, doesn't view um, homosexual relationships as, as a bad thing and that he doesn't view them as any type of a big deal. Um, which does kind of fit in with his more cosmopolitan, um, New York slash California, you know, aesthetic. Um, and this is random. And again, I kind of I'm a bit hesitant to bring this up, but it does remind me of that quote from Creed in the office where he's talking about the sixties and Creed says, you know, I had, I had sex with a bunch of people in the sixties, you know, a bunch of women. Uh, it's possible that a few men slipped in there, you know, there's no way of knowing. Uh, which is an all-time Creed quote from The Office. Um, I just kind of want to throw that out there and uh, point out that, you know, I, I'm happy that I didn't necessarily bring that up beforehand because uh, that small detail, I think, can be kind of, um, you know, it, it's I, I really like that that small detail was, was thrown in there and that it does seem to kind of speak to the fact that my my kind of lingering uh, doubts about the word fop are probably greatly misplaced. Um, and just in general, this whole, you know, like the fact that they escape on a kite is quite enjoyable. Um, it's really fun to kind of uh, this. This whole section is very fun to picture. Um, the, the I do love that the phrase as above, so below keeps on recurring in this book. Uh, about halfway through, maybe two thirds of the way through, you know, Kabbalah starts coming up a lot more. 
um, hermetic hermetic philosophy seems to kind of be becoming a, a bigger and a bigger deal the further west they move. Um, you know, things kind of get a little bit more esoteric and possibly arcane as they kind of go further and further away from civilization. Um, yeah, it's just, I don't, it's just, it's also fun to kind of picture Zhang telling this whole story. You know, maybe they're sitting around a fire and he's just kind of going off about all this stuff. Um, I actually didn't, I had read parts of that thing from the Pinchin Wiki. I didn't realize how famous that story of the ancient Chinese astronomers was. Um, so it is interesting to kind of think of, of Pynchon coming across that story, linking it to Mason and Dixon and trying to kind of write like an alternate history version of that story. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I think including the Lambden worm and now including this, this apparently quite famous story are just more supports to his, his thematic qualities in the, in the novel about, you know, who gets to tell history how does it get shaped by retellings? How is it twisted by retellings? You know, who has who has the claim to the accurate telling of the story? And and this is certainly one of those, given that we have this whole section added to it after, you know, in, in the real story, if that is actually the events that occurred, the astronomers were were beheaded. He adds this entire sort of second half to their to their story before it actually ends. So yeah, I I think it's very cool how he's using these these impactful famous stories from across different cultures and history and, and suiting them more to the purpose of the novel he's writing. Do we have any more thoughts on chapter 64? Well, I, just that I, I find this, uh, the, the, the use of nested stories in this broad section of the book, uh, combined with the, the particular phrasing of the plume of dust about an army on the move and the way they bicker that she and hope bicker about it does remind me a lot of Don Quixote and (laughs) the, the, one of the beginning scenes of that book is where Don Quixote has is on his snag with Sancho Panza on his, uh, on his mule. And they look out and they see across the plains, this big cloud and, uh, Don Quixote readies his lance to, to fight off an, an entire army by himself, and we get whole paragraphs of preparation for it, while uh, Sancho Panza is terrified and Don Quixote is being brave, and then it's just a bunch of sheep flocking. <laughs> and it just, I, I don't know. I, 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 would normally, I, I would normally just shut that down and say it's a leap, but having it be kind of literally in the middle of this little story within the story, having it, having it, you know, be two people who are bickering with each other. It, it, it it feels pretty, pretty on the nose to me, at least. And I I do appreciate that. Well, and there's, there's been other things that we've brought up in past episodes that seem referential to Don Quixote in, in this book in particular, if not, yeah. you know, other things in, in Pinchon's wider, wider canon. So I based there at all. But no, I, I think everything else that I've seen in this chapter. All right. So moving into chapter 65, our last chapter of this section, 
Um, how did we how did we feel about chapter 65? Most of my thoughts are more towards the end of this chapter. Um, I'm curious what you guys thought of, of this particular section. Yeah, I didn't necessarily, this chapter didn't make as big of an impression on me as the preceding four. Um, that being said, I was just kind of skimming it and uh, the discussion of uh, the pot, like the historical basis for, for Christ, uh, for Jesus Christ, or the uh, lack thereof is interesting. And I, I do think I brought that up before in the context of um, uh, something Cherry Coke said that I'm kind of blanking on the exact phrasing of. Um, the search for the historical Jesus that's brought up by, I think, Ethelmer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that has come up before in this book. Um, mm-hmm. As somebody that, um, you know, I went to, I used to go to church three or four times a week in the 90s with my family. I mean, I was a kid. Um, I did actually pay a lot of attention in church um, for whatever reason. And I do know that around the mid to late 90s, the whole. Uh, Search for a historical basis, uh, a more academic and um, scientific, maybe not like maybe not scientifically rigorous, but in, in the in the sense that you know, like science, science, scientific discovery, scientific theories have to be rigorous. People were trying to find a uh, a historical basis for Jesus that would stand up to the standards of academic and scientific uh, rigor. Um. So this is kind of, it does kind of date the book in some ways, in a nice way. Um, uh, you know, I don't, the the whole discussion of um, when the wise men showed up uh, is interesting. The whole discussion of, um, you know, the timeline of Jesus's birth and as it relates to Herod and um, other historical stuff that we know about, about how, Stuff that we know that happened around that time in the um, in that area, um, yeah. I, I don't necessarily have much like to draw from it or um, some like you know really cool thing to say about it. But I, I did find it interesting that whole discussion and um, interesting that that cherry that pension is is framing it as as those discussions happening in the in the seventeen hundreds. Um, because I I don't you know I, it's unclear to me. Um, even though I did study historiography in college, uh, the concept of historiography and all of that, I'm not. I didn't study it in the context of when we found out what about people like Herod and Pontius Pilate and stuff like that. So I do wonder if it's an anachronism, and it does strike me as pretty likely to be an anachronism that these characters would know that. Uh, in the mid to late 1700s, but I suppose it's possible. Yeah, I'm trying to trying to figure out if there's anything to to say about the first couple pages of this chapter. And there's stuff to appreciate, but there's not much to to really discuss. I don't think. Um, I, I I do see. I think that there's one reading of this whole chapter as an extended pun of sorts saying that the line is the thin edge thin end of the wedge of modernity or something just looking at it holistically the way it starts with the discussion of the the, mecha- the mechanisms of running the line 
and how it, it created this sense of ownership between the two of them, and oh, you know, the way that it inspires this conversation about, um, you know, biblical timeline stuff, which I'm not sure would have been terribly anachronistic because, uh, you know, that that people like Kepler were running the math on this kind of stuff, and the Reverend is clearly not just a reverend and the astronomers would have you know mason almost certainly has had to proofread at least tables of these kinds of bullshit dates that are just created for the sake of appeasing the church um i i see this all as kind of a, I guess more of a meta conversation than is anything in itself i guess yeah, certainly I, I think the early sections of this chapter are the interpretation or the understanding of which is pretty plain on the page. Just the combinations between, you know, Eastern and Western. In this case, the the, the width of a circle changing or the, the degrees of a circle changing versus the the 11 days of, of history that were, that were removed from the calendar. I, I feel like the what Pinchon is doing there from a comparison standpoint is, pre is pretty clear on the page. Um, beyond that, I don't know if I really have, have much else to, to bring up about the, the early half of the chapter. Um, kind of moving into the, the issue presented with the, the birth of Jesus at the end of the chapter, that is something that, to Luke's point, was a big thing in the 90s as far as trying to search for more... Um, historical references or, or historical proofs in order to support the, the birth of Jesus. Um, for those who do not know, there is no widely held belief any longer within biblical scholars or historical, um, you know, just, just non-religious historical scholars that actually believe the birth of Jesus was December 25th um, or in, you know, BC zero or AD one, you know, right, right where those actual transition points in the calendar happen. Those were put forth in 350 AD by Pope Julius the first, as far as a theory for when uh, Jesus would have been born. We now know with the benefit of hindsight and a lot of scholarship that this was simply something done in order to help make a Christian push to take over the solstice from paganism and take that holiday and apply it to the the religious context of, of the the widely expanding Christian movement at the time and that it's really based in nothing other than than sort of a, a cultural cannibalism taking place. As far as what we can sort of guess now is that he was probably born uh, between 6 and 4 BC, uh, likely the year 5, because Herod still would have been in power at the time. He did not die until 4 BC, so he would have been able to issue that decree. Um, additionally, there is a University of Cambridge professor named Colin Humphreys, who has an article in the Quarterly Journal of the Royal Astronomical Society saying that a comet would have passed over the area in 5 BC, which likely could have been the star of Bethlehem. 
Uh, that, if that is true, that would place his birth uh, in April. There are other pieces of evidence that would place Jesus' birth in October uh, due to the, the particular astronomical positionings of stars, one being potentially brighter than the other. There is also a uh, competing interpretation that would say that the star of Bethlehem is actually not something that literally happened, but is instead a work of literary value and theological value within the narratives of the Gospels that is there specifically to to draw meaning not from a historical context but just from from a from a literal or theological perspective that's generally the interpretation i land on there's no reason for the star of bethlehem itself to exist and exist at the time in order to add something to the idea that jesus may have been the messiah if you are a a christian individual um, there is enough other elements of the New Testament and the Old Testament that I could talk about for days and weeks and months in recording time that are not actually literal and are instead figurative or inclusions of a literary or theological value. That means that this is likely just one of those things and that Jesus probably would have been born uh, in October and he probably would have been born um, in the year four because of what was going on at the time relative to Herod's reign. For a very, very long time, this was seen as absurd to put forth, simply because of uh, the, the overriding belief in biblical literacy, meaning that you had to take everything literally. Uh, but to have a, a, a solid grasp of what the Bible was teaching and putting forth and, and to be literate in the Bible would mean that you would need to interpret everything literally that there was no there was no literary merit to it as as a as it would stand for symbols and and thematic meanings other than than what it would have been if it was it was a work of history um this fell out of favor in the 90s and has continued to fall out of favor well into the 2000s and even more so in the 2010s and 2020s um not to you know freak any christians out listening to the the show but uh there is no ability to prove that the earth was made in seven days based upon the biblical retelling because the sun and the moon that which we guide a 24-hour day were not extant together until at least day two and day three so there is really no need to take things within the bible from a scientific lens very seriously um, it is likely all just for literary or theological value to the readers that were interpreting it at the time, which is certainly the standpoint that Mason and Dixon are coming from here, uh, not knowing yet that, the, that there is there is any other way to interpret the Bible besides literally, um, as that was certainly the prevailing theory at the time. So yeah, uh, there's your there's your your not quite weekly, but at least monthly theology lesson uh, and church history lesson from me on that. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of mind-blowing when people realize that their religion, which is premised upon faith and concepts of non-material things, doesn't rely on, like, rationality to prove it. <laughs> it's, it's an amazing thing to watch as yeah. people realize that... Uh, they don't need to defend things along the same lines that they that they seem to think they do. Anyway, <laughs> I, it, I yeah. yeah. 
it, it was very cool to see to see real life argumentation being brought into a book that's being written in the 17 you know the late 1700s to to luke's point of view um it's hard to date when some of this stuff would have made it into mason and dixon because as we've talked about on earlier shows it's quite possible if not extremely likely that this was one of the three books that he was composing that were competing for attention uh in the letters that he wrote when he was writing crying of lot 49 um so you know it, it's hard to guess when these things ended up in here but you know if it was something that was coming out of the late 80s early 90s and and he found a way to to, to put it into his narrative here um it, it's a pretty fun inclusion to see yeah, and it might have just filtered down to the, the everyman in the late 90s. But, you know, people like... That's true. Falwell and such mm-hmm. had, had been, you know, making their money off of trying to establish that kind of mindset up through the 70s, so... All right, so that brings us to funny parts in these section of chapters. Does anyone have anything specific? I brought up the ones that really stood out to me as we, as we kind of went. Yeah, as I already kind of talked about the the part with the uh, the were beaver and the uh, the the prostitutes acting like cheerleaders was was pretty funny. I really enjoyed Kate's rendition of of their chant. Um, <laughs> that's probably the funniest part for me. For for me, it's probably it's probably just I'm not going to read it out because it's far too long of a of a section to get the effect across. But the way that uh, Shir and Ho are trying to, um, basically just the way they're trying to sidle in on the the local lord's property, every step of that is hilarious to me. Uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm having to skim over it right now because if I read it, I will laugh and that it will not make for good listening. That's fair. So I guess that brings us into quotes. Um, I will I will start just to sort of get it out of the way here. Um, mine comes from page six hundred and fifteen, uh, and this is coming out of chapter sixty three. This is the conversation between Captain Jang and uh, Mason and Dixon, where we're getting into the the whole idea of the the bad history. Um, their last 10 minute arc segment this time out lands them about two miles short of the summit of Savage Mountain, beyond which all waters flow west and legally the limit of their commission. They set a post at 165 miles, 54 chains, 88 links from the post marked west, and turning begin to widen the visto, moving east again. Axe blows the day long from the ridges, they can now see their visto, dividing the green vapors of foliage that wrap the land. Undulating stump-top yellow, lofty American clouds is sailing above. And this day, from the summit of Sidelong Hill, I saw a line still formed the arch of a lesser circle, very beautiful and agreeable to the laws of a sphere, as Mason records. Yet, he confides to Captain Zhang, this unremitting forest, it disturbs me. Far, far too many trees. Consider, replies the geomancer, Adam and Eve ate fruit from a tree and were enlightened. The Buddha sat beneath a tree, and he was enlightened. Newton, also sitting beneath a tree, was hit by a falling apple, and he was enlightened. A quick overview would suggest that trees produce enlightenment. Trees are not the problem. The forest is not an agent of darkness, but it may be your visto is. Are we in any danger at this moment? Mason might be joking, but for an anxious undertone. Shaw takes time to accumulate and accelerate, explains Captain Zhang. 
At this stage, only those of heightened sensitivity like myself even can feel it, but I am uncomfortable. Maybe move off the line a bit. To rule forever, continues the Chinaman later. It is necessary only to create among the people one would rule what we call bad history. Nothing will produce bad history more directly nor brutally than drawing a line, in particular a right line, the very shape of contempt, through the midst of a people to create thus a distinction betwixt them. Tis the first stroke. All else will follow as if predestined unto war and devastation. So I, I read the stuff preceding that final bit of dialogue because I think that the description of trees and the land is beautiful and it just speaks to to Pinchon's quality as a as a writer but getting to the the actual bad history quote itself at the end of the section that i read you know there is there is the obvious reality of what Zhang is talking about in in that lines will produce predestined outcomes of war and devastation in that the mason and dixon line would eventually be the dividing line between the north and the south in the american civil war um, that that feels particularly predestined in what he's talking about here, and, and certainly did lead to nothing but war and devastation. But it also shows the the dividing line between free and slave states in the country around that time as well. Once the Civil War did come, and that carries with it all sorts of of, of devastation of humanity and and certainly murder and the mistreatment of people based upon nothing more than than skin color or or difference in, in, you know, point of view. And, you know, we, we talked already about how it may relate to, to the, the idiocy of how we, we divide ourselves by, by race or class or, um, you know, ethnicity. But it also speaks to the things that Mason and Dixon have already been seeing to this point in drawing the line. They're seeing that it is causing people's marriages to, to become jeopardized. It is causing people to... Um, you know, cross the line to to steal children and in the process of of kidnapping a child, commit you know you know very very brutal savagery as we talked about towards other people on the other half of that line. And for others, it has to do with the the beginning of of a ceaseless desire for land acquisition, which carries all sorts of of moralistic foibles with it. And so there there's a very real sense of of something that carries over out of the book into the real world in what Zhang is talking about but it it feels particularly impactful not just with these sections but the next five chapters we're going to go into as well and and certainly speaks to the the broader points that Pinchon is making with with the book as a whole you know not to mention that I, I don't know the exact number of years but only a few years after the events of this book are over you have the Declaration of Independence and you have the Constitution being written where that has a line in it that says all men are created equal, which obviously did not mean that all men were created equal. Uh, certainly to the people at the time, they, they would not have seen any equality between people who are white landowners and, and people who are slaves or African-Americans or indigenous people or even you know Chinese or people from Asia that were already in the country. So it, it, it has a lot of meaning to it. And it comes uh, right after a, a beautiful description of forest and of the land that they're on. And that is why I picked that quote. So my quote is a little bit similar in that it's uh, nature writing, but um, mine comes from the beginning of the section. 
uh, which is page 597. I, and I do think there are perhaps more beautiful sections of the uh, more beautiful prose in this section, but I just, I just like the nature writing here. Uh, down by the creek, they fall in with the path Shelby means to follow. The North Mountain rears above them, soon to catch the first light at its crest. Trees fill with whistling. Squadrons of cloud go rushing in the sky. The breeze has a cold edge. Dead leaves are everywhere. Soon all odor of wood smoke has, has, has faded behind them. That of ripeness come and gone enfolds them. And then something else. Um, those are some of the shortest sentences in the whole book, I would say. And it's kind of nice that they're all uh, squished together. Um, I just really like that that paragraph. Um, I enjoy... I don't necessarily enjoy nature writing in and of itself, but I do enjoy at parts of larger narratives that aren't nature writing that concern themselves with nature. Um, yeah. Well, I was considering a sec- part of uh, the section you chose, Kate, but haha, I avoided <laughs> being stolen from. Oh, that's good. It helps when there's one fewer to compete with. <laughs> that's true. So, uh, con- continuing on, um, beyond, beyond the nature writing, because I, 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 I think that I'm normally the nature writing chooser, but uh, y'all already got, got the gems of that. So, on uh, page 610, later in the day, as they emerge from a woodline, Mason gesturing eastward to where the encampment has swung into view, a flight of sail. Something waits, directly in the path of our parallel, too sure of itself to feel obliged to come forward and meet us, and lo, what is to become of this rolling gypsy village we've brought with us? Late sun, early shadow, and the tent riggings, pots a-clattering, kitchen smoke sucked out of vents by the wind passing over. None of this may be about either you or me. Our story may lie rather behind and ahead, and only with the transits of Venus, never here in the present, upon the line whose true drama belongs to others, Darby, Cope, Tom Hines, Mr. Barnes, some new hire we don't even see. And when tis all done, I shall only return to Sapperton, no wiser, and some day wake up and not know if any of this happened, or if I merely dreamed it, even this very moment, Dixon, which I know is real. And, yeah, there, there's, you know, you've talked about the substance of that of that paragraph before in this episode, but I, I just think that the way it's phrasing, it's phrased, is is just beautiful. Yeah, I don't think I, I clocked that phrase upon upon my read-through, so I appreciate you bringing it back through. That is really beautiful. Does anyone have a most pinch-on part of the chapter? Uh, mine is probably the quote that I already talked about, is slavery is very old upon these shores. Um... That entire section, that entire conversation is probably my choice um, for the reasons I've already been over. Um, but yeah, it's just, I mean, pensions, um, pensions, like, you know, encyclopedic uh, knowledge of, of history and, and the movements of history and all that stuff is, is constantly uh, hitting me over the head with, with how, how virtuosic it is. So. Yeah, I agree. I, I mean, we talked about it in in depth when the the section in Crying of Offerdan is brought up about Thoth, but it it really is 
you can take it for granted reading these books now in the the 21st century and having easy access to all of this information or having more of it, you know, innervated out into pop culture that of just how impressive it is that one guy has such knowledge of all these different things at, at whether it's the sixties or the nineties or, you know, the seventies, doesn't matter. It's, it's, you can lose sight of that reading it in the modern age, but it is truly impressive. The depth of knowledge he has about everything. Yeah, and the, the way that people talk about it sometimes, I, I get the sense that people who haven't read his books might come away with the idea that, you know, it's it's normal books and then there's just, like, fact dumping. And there is plenty of that, honestly, in, <laughs> in like, Gravity's Rainbow in particular. Mm -hmm. But it, it isn't that. The, the impressive part that I, I think is the reason that people actually appreciate it and it doesn't just feel like somebody copied out sections of an encyclopedia is that he is utilizing every every fact holistically every fact for him is you know the same for for any author the way that you would use a piece of imagery or a piece of character development the facts are part of the framework of the book and i i really it's incredible the way that he does just blend it into the blend it into the substance of the novel when it when it could just come across all of these things could just come across as like look how smart i am which some people clearly think that's what it is right yeah um but my my most pinchony part is uh i'm gonna go for a, a funnier part than the 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 real bummers y'all chose with uh the section where uh, Shira and Ho are arguing over who screwed up uh, predicting the eclipse and one of them says well I didn't check every digit I assumed that if you were doing your job I wouldn't have to Yeah, <laughs> which it's, it just is I mean it's anachronistic on every level you know not just language but also like I'm pretty sure they were not using digits in the sense we think of them today Right. <laughs> they wouldn't yeah. have used math in the same way that would have essentially just been, you know, charts and qualitative descriptions and predictions that are that probably to our eye would look more like numerology or mysticism than actual astronomy. But he discards all of that for, you know, just the normal like business partnership. Did you check that column? No, if I if you did your job right, I wouldn't have had to. <laughs> Yeah, that did stick out to me, definitely. All right, so we do have some uh, emails from listeners. Uh, first, we got a letter from an anonymous listener who says, Hi, thanks for making the podcast. I got into reading a couple years ago as a way to cope with the domesticity of parenthood. And while I'm happy to have found my niche in Pinchon and writers like him, I haven't found any flesh-and-blood people who share my passion. I'm pretty sure all four of the people who are normally on this podcast can relate to that. Uh, it's very true. It's been a lot of fun to listen to the gang talk about the crying of Lot 49 and now Mason and Dixon. I've been keeping sort of a mental list of thoughts that might contribute to the ongoing conversation. Here's two that I remember now. One, the bit in Mason and Dixon about the golem definitely made me think of Mormonism. And I was glad to hear that I wasn't the only one. As a member of that faith myself, I had a theory for a while that Pinchon was a Latter-day Saint, or at least grew up in the church. This started with the title Against the Day, which occurs in a Mormon text called the Doctrine and Covenants. 
Wherefore the decree hath gone forth from the Father that they shall be gathered in unto one place upon the face of this land to prepare their hearts and be prepared in all things against the day when tribulation and desolation are sent forth upon the wicked. I couldn't point to anything specific, but that seemed to jive with the apocalyptic feeling of the book against the day. In any case, I've given up my theory. Pinchon throws a lot of stuff at his readers, and it's easy to gather up a few and make claims while ignoring the rest. I do think that the history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has some resonance with Pinchon themes, though. It's noted as a countercultural force that preached individualism and communal living in defiance of the dominant institutional forces of the time. However, by the 1960s, counterforce had turned to force in the culture of the Church to the point where Doc Sportello could safely assume that those two FBI guys harassing him were Mormons. Two, I've liked what Luke and the rest have had to say about Mason and Dixon being a book about Thomas Pinchon's relationship with Richard Farina. I hadn't thought about it this way until listening to those episodes, but the conversation brought a couple things to mind for me. First, and I hope this isn't reaching too far, when I read Mason and Dixon, I remember a scene where Mason is talking to his dad and being scolded for his life choices. And Pinchon uses the word farinaceous. I think that's how it might be pronounced. Farinaceous. Farinaceous. I looked it up at the time, and it means doughy. It made me think of farina, though, and that seemed intentional. Then, a few weeks ago when I was reading Vineland, I noticed something similar. Pinchon uses the word keel on the same page that he suggests that the aliens people encounter are not human, but very much of this earth. This is an idea made popular by a, by a guy named John Keel in his book Mothman Prophecies. And that doesn't seem like a coincidence. Is this a trick Pinchon likes to use? Can anyone think of other examples where a word is chosen which, in addition to making contextual sense, brings to mind someone Pinchon is nodding to? Second, I found an album at a record store a while ago called Celebrations for a Grey Day by Mimi and Richard Farina. You'll notice a song called V that's dedicated to Thomas Pinchon and Benny Profane, as well as a list, a long list of nonsense that reminded me of the Slothrop's desk bit in Gravity's Rainbow. The front looks like this, and then this person linked to a Discogs profile picture for the album. Am I crazy for thinking that it's no coincidence that, decades later, Pinchon would choose to put an equally giant ampersand on the cover of Mason and Dixon? Anyway, thanks for making the podcast happen. Bye! Uh, thank you for your email. Um, we're always very excited to get things from our readers. I I can't add anything to the Against the Day uh, discussion or your theory there, because I have not read it. Um, but you're, you're highlighting of some of this stuff with the development of, of the Jesus Christ Church of Latter-day Saints and, and Mormonism is interesting, certainly. And I had no idea that there was an album by Mimi and Richard Farina. That's, that's pretty cool. I was just going to say, I really do appreciate the, uh, the ampersand in that album cover because yeah. it's, it's really prominent. I agree. <laughs> I don't think there's any way that that's not, at least on Finchon's side, like reminiscent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do think it is supposed to be a, it's and some kind of a nod to that album cover. Uh, to address the person's other two questions, the is this a trick Pynchon likes to use? Um, can anyone think of other examples where a word is chosen, which in addition to making contextual sense, brings to mind pin- someone Pynchon is nodding to? Uh, Kate and I brought this up, but I do think the, the fact that the word fulogen comes up uh, earlier in the book in the same chapter as the uh, the proper noun wolf comes up. I do think that's intentional. Um, I, I suppose we'll see about other instances where Pynchon does this um, as we move through his books. Because, um, I mean, yeah, it's not like any of us will have, will have read everything Pynchon has read or be aware of everything Pynchon is aware of. But I, I don't think 
but that it's too much of a stretch to think that Pynchon um, does that intentionally, at least sometimes in his in his work. And yeah, like like y'all were saying, I do think that the the fact that there's the massive ampersand on that album cover, and then the fact that the Mason and Dixon cover is is dominated by the ampersand, um, I do think that that is a possible nod to the genesis of this book and some of the inspirations for this book. Yeah, and then continuing on from the that general idea, yeah, I mean, it, even in this section with the the plume of dust thing with the approaching army, I, I mean, I, I do think that Pynchon does that kind of wordplay very often. I've pointed it out before. I don't remember because he uses the uses the phrase in both books. I can't remember if I pointed it out in Lot Forty Nine or Mason and Dixon. Uh, his use of the term ineluctable modality has a lot of uh, Joycean resonance. Mm. Uh, you're, you're not just uh, hallucinating when you see things like that in his works. You might not always be on the spot. None of us are the man. None of us can know exactly what he was thinking, but we're supposed to be doing that. We're supposed to be building these kind of holographs of meaning in our minds. Yeah, thank you again for uh, for sending in that that email, and you're you're absolutely welcome for making the podcast happen. If anything, at least from my perspective, this is just sort of gives us an excuse to kind of all collectively nerd out about one of our favorite authors for a couple hours a week. Yeah, and then from Brett, we had another great episode. Five mostly quick notes for this week. Enjoyed the discussion of the Kennedy stuff in the Zapruder film. Libra and Underworld are two, are the two best Lilo books for me by quite a ways, and Underworld features a scene where the Zapruder film is being shown on loop on some sort of art gallery. Definitely captures some of Cody's ideas about desensitization to violence, and I always find it fascinating that Underworld and Mason and Dixon were published only two months apart. I was with Kate on Dixon's French accent for what it's worth. He was much more on the ball with the French cover than was Mason. Obviously, the bi-lunar exhibition is fiction, but as you'd expect, a whole lot of the stuff in episode 57 is in line with the more historical record. Archibald Kennedy, the Coventry, and Fort George all played a major role in New York City's resistance to the Stamp Act in 1765 and 1766. I'm not sure Mason's the one who utters the N-word at page 572, line 24. The first line of that quote involves the speaker saying, not only presuming us that are subjects, emphasis mine. I've noticed that as coming, fr I've noticed that as coming from an anonymous American colonist. Always possible that's incorrect, but I don't know that Mason would vent against the British Crown in quite this way, since he mostly sees himself as a Brit. Finally, I share everyone's appreciation of episode sixty and Pynchon's retelling of the Lambton Worm story is one of my favorite parts of the book. I'm super interested in Pynchon's additions to the story. Primarily, I think that that involves how specific he is about the time frame. Most sources seem to date the Lambton Worm to the 14th century, but Pynchon sets it in the 15th. He's also very specific about which crusade John Lambton departs for, the Crusade of Varna. I think this is intentional. Here's my gloss on that specific crusade. Page 591, line 9. Cesarini Cardinal Julian... 1398 to 1444. 
led the Crusade of Varna. It was an attempt to stop the Islamic Ottoman Empire from advancing into Hungary. In 1444, a treaty, the Peace of Szeged, named after a city in Hungary, was brokered, but Cesarini urged Hungarian leaders to violate it. They did, and they were defeated at the Battle of Varna, where Cesarini died, in eastern Bulgaria. Hungary stopped being a threat to the Ottoman Empire, and this paved the way for the fall of the Byzantine Empire in 1453. John's participation in this specific crusade is a pension addition to the folktale, and it situates the story at a thematically relevant subjunctive moment before the fall of Constantinople solidifies the east-west, uh, in parentheses, Zhang slash Zarpazo, divide. Essentially, Pinchon is able to situate the story within one of those central tensions in the text. He sets John's oath in mystical Transylvania, and the story asks questions about the continued role of the spiritual or supernatural in a modern, more scientific world. The conversation on pages 594 to 595 touches on these ideas directly, and then we move into that conversation about the mysterious mounds. Brett. P.S. I ordered the Ice Shirt and two other Seven Dreams volumes after listening to a bit of your post-episode banter. I've been meaning to get into Volman for a while. I also related to Cody's I Gotta Stop Buying Books. Thanks for the good recommendations there. It's been really great to be able to engage with Mason and Dixon and get some other book recs each episode. Um, as always, thank you for the information. I think your insight on the specific timing of the Lambton Worm retelling is great. I hadn't considered that at all. It's, it's definitely intentional, as you say. Yeah, thank you for the defense of my point about his accent. Um, and also thank you for, for bringing up the, the Crusade of Varna. Um, I was trying to find a way to sneak in that information last week, and there just wasn't a, a time for me to do it while we were having that conversation. So I'm glad that we could get a, a more scholarly write-up. That is one of the most interesting Crusades. If anyone's ever actually like done a deep dive on all of the Crusades and the history and what they represent, just how that particular crusade came about why it came about why it was where it was instead of in the holy land and um how it concluded is all it's it's super fascinating history that i would recommend everyone go and and read about uh in their their off time this week yeah and th thanks for telling us that you sided with kate so that i can teach my children <laughs> to attack yours because uh dixon's french accent is clearly the worst one all right uh thank you as always everybody for tuning into another episode of the show we we really love making it for y'all and thank you to everyone who who's reviewed us uh on any any podcasting platform thank you for anyone who sent in comments or or emails at any point um as always we will have links to our social media in the description of this particular episode as well as a link to the the photo of the uh, album by Mimi and Richard Farina that you can all see the the big ampersand that we were talking about. When we uh, reconvene next week, it will be for chapters 66 through 70, which brings us within a uh, very close striking distance of the end of the America section of the book. And so until you hear from us again next week, thanks for listening. Bye. See ya. I, I do love that I did just read 
Yeah, shirt right before this section. Yeah, that really came in handy. Yeah, because I mean, I you know, I knew a bit about Norse mythology. I did not understand their topology of the world, I guess. Mm -hmm. Which is just kind of crazy. It is. It is pretty wild. That was one of the first things that I really like dug into past the surface level understanding when I started like involving myself in Norse paganism. It's it's a very fascinating cultural thing. Yeah. As I may not have done a very good job of hiding, I have a bit of a habit of, you know, trying to piece together larger things from uh, diffuse cultural and mythological backgrounds. So the the way that the Norse stuff lines up with uh, North American native stuff is kind of awesome. Yeah, it's very cool. Very cool. Like like I had mentioned in the after show discussion last week, that was one of my favorite uh, parts of, of dating that indigenous person that I dated. Hmm. It's just getting to like share culture and talk through that stuff and, and find those those similarities there, despite coming from the other side of the world initially. It really goes to show you that as much as I hate Jordan B. Peterson, he's kind of correct in his uh, statements about universally understood ideas and recurrent themes and cultures that never had any contact with one another. Well, mo the biggest issue with him is the bait and switch where, you know, he starts off talking about that and then immediately, once he reaches his conclusion section, says, but none of that matters because white Christian supremacy <laughs> is the only truth. Right, yeah. <laughs> it's it's like I want I was on a flight from China actually a couple of years ago and I was seated next to this random very precocious 16-year-old homeschooled kid <laughs> who was a big fan of Jordan Peterson. Oh god. Now, unfortunately for him, I had taken some muscle relaxants. And so he and I had a very long conversation where I explained to him exactly the bullshit that Jordan Peterson ruined his, uh, the actually useful lessons he teaches with. Yeah. I don't know if I got through to him, but, uh, hope so. Cause that, like, we don't need another 16, right at this point he'd be 18 year old kid who uh who thinks that jordan peterson is like got it all figured out right that he's some sort of <laughs> socrates of the modern era <laughs> the fact that you can purchase a, a marble bust of, of jordan peterson's head is crazy to me need to need to buy a small ledge and put it over my bed yeah, that definitely seems uh definitely seems completely reasonable. There's a uh... I don't know. Never mind. Okay. <laughs> there's there's this whole world of like essentially Nazbol people that I've that I stumbled into a, a while ago and I just I was about to go into a whole rant about them. 
<laughs> right. But national Bolshevism deserves nothing, so not even the time it takes to decry it. That's fair. <laughs> I'm back, by the way. All right. I'm just going to take a pause before we go back in so that he can edit it easier.